You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Good evening, everybody. It's so nice to see uh, so many of you here. Uh, I'm Rashad Kasaba. I'm the uh, director of Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies. And we're gathered here to discuss a very important event, which is the election of uh, Donald Trump as president of the United States and its impact on the world. Uh, we in the Jackson School worry about the global implications of all kinds of events all the time. And this, of course, is especially important event because uh, those of us who travel around the world know that the rest of the world is very much aware that when we vote for the President of the United States here, we vote someone who acquires immense amount of power to affect not only the fates of the people in this country, but around the world. So it's an event that's watched with interest all over the world. And we are fortunate in the Jackson School to have a group of experts who are in a position to talk about this from their various uh, points of expertise and interest. Before I introduce our panel and uh, tell you what we will do tonight, I want to uh, point out two upcoming events, which are kind of a continuation of this discussion that we will start today. Um, so on December 1st, which is uh, this Thursday, we will uh, have a lecture by Javad Salahi Isfahani, who is a professor of economics at Virginia Tech uh, University and also a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings Institute. And he will speak on Iran after the nuclear agreement, love and hate toward the global economy. That's on December 1st, 7 p.m. in Thompson Hall, room 101. And in case you haven't had enough, uh, on January 13th, we will uh, be joined by Henri Barquet, who is a senior scholar at Woodrow Wilson Institute in Washington, D.C., one of the foremost experts on Turkey's foreign politics and domestic politics. And he will be speaking on a troubled Turkey, a troubled country in a troubled region. And that is on January 13th at 7 p.m. in Kane 220. So tonight we will talk about Trump and, and the world. And we have uh, here four of my colleagues and we will be joined by a fifth one by Skype. Uh, I will introduce uh, the presenters, uh, and they will speak uh, each for about 10 to 15 minutes. And these four will bring us up to close to 8 p.m. And we will be connected to Israel Tel Aviv at, five, at uh, uh, 8 p.m. Uh, and we will hear from our colleague Joel Migdal, who has uh, been visiting in Tel Aviv. Uh, this is his second year being away and he will give um, uh, us his uh, uh, observations 
uh, from Israel, uh, not only from Israel, but from a regional perspective, what uh, Trump's election means. So um, I do understand that this is obviously a very contentious, was a very contentious election, and the results of this election has uh, roused a lot of passions uh, on many of us, and that is a very important thing to keep in mind. But I would like to keep tonight uh, more as a discussion and trying to look into the future a little bit and see what this all means for us and for the many people in the world. So when the time comes, and I will remind you again for questions, uh, please keep them short and ask questions so that we can have as broad and as fulfilling a discussion as we can. So of the countries and regions that we're considering here today, Russia is no doubt the weirdest one in this election. Partly because Russia rarely comes up in American elections. In fact, foreign policy is rarely discussed. And when it is in the past, Russia has rarely been mentioned. But in this election, Russia was a very big player, whether real or imagined. Both candidates talked about Russia a lot for different reasons. And it was also striking that the two candidates reversed the typical uh, positions of the political parties on Russia. Well, in general, neither party uh, speaks especially uh, favorably of Russia, but Republicans are usually considered to be a little bit more hostile toward Russia. In this case, Trump was very pro-Russia in his rhetoric, and Hillary Clinton was very anti-Russia. So there are different angles that one can take in talking about Trump and Russia. Uh, it could be talking about the campaign and Russia's role in it, if any, uh, the so-called bromance between Trump and Putin, and policy changes that we might see going forward. So I'll talk about a little of those, um, try, to, try to weave them together. One caveat here, though, there's no necessary connection in general between a politician's campaign rhetoric and the policies he or she ends up carrying out. And in Trump's case, that's even more so. I am no more capable than anyone to read the Trump tea leaves. There are more qualified Trumpologists out there than I, and many of us in this room are amateur armchair Trumpologists. So in general, we try to do the best we can weighing various hypotheses and scenarios. So the first question that came up during the campaign, uh, which left a lot of people scratching their heads, was why did Trump reverse the Republican Party's long-standing position on there was no obvious electoral benefit for him. As I mentioned, foreign policy is rarely an election issue in America. There was no clamoring from his base. The white working class was not demanding that the new president cozy uh, up to Putin. Trump ran mostly on domestic issues, and insofar as he mentioned foreign countries at all, it was in connection with his domestic issues, right? Immigration and Mexico, trade and China. So additional rhetoric about Russia seemed gratuitous, especially because it conflicted, again, with uh, longstanding Republican policy. And it also stands out if you compare Trump's other rhetoric about other countries of concern to the U.S. and the Republican Party in particular, his positions on Iran and Cuba, right, very hardline, very hawkish, are consistent with Republican Party doctrine. 
so there, Russia stands out even more. Why does he single out Russia for all this special treatment? And I don't know the answer. But I'm going to offer one theory which I find at least somewhat plausible. And that has to do mostly with personality. Potential strong leader. He's called the CEO of Russia, Inc. He is fully in control, resolute, tough on terrorists, Superman, at least on Russian TV. Trump has a self-image of Trump as president that's very similar to this portrayal and resembles the image of Trump on television in The Apprentice as a resolute CEO who can fire people at will and make tough decisions. Obama mentioned in the uh, in that uh, roasting of him, uh, right? He made the fire Gary Busey, and that's the kinds of, of decisions that presidents have to make. Now, other politicians in the U.S. see through the Putin shtick. They recognize Putin for what he is an authoritarian leader who represses his opposition, who controls the Russian media, and therefore can't control the message and make himself appear as the Superman that Russia thinks he is. But this is a trifling detail of substance. In style, Trump perhaps likes what he sees in Putin. And their supporters also like what they see. Russians, by and large, I think, believe what they see on TV. Putin's popularity rating is very high. And studies that that's actually legitimate. And a lot of Americans also believe reality shows are real. <laughs> and they saw Trump on TV for over a decade, I think, acting like a CEO, acting tough and resolute, and maybe they bought that. Uh, another reason why um, Trump might have an affinity for, for Putin is that they have a similar view of power, where it comes from and how it's exercised. For example, Putin sees protests as fundamentally illegitimate, and not only when they're against him. For Putin, protests are a signal of anarchy, the opposite of order, which it's the leader's job to provide. Trump has given interviews in which he spoke favorably of the Chinese response to protesters in Tiananmen Square criticized Gorbachev in 1990 for not having a firmer hand. Putin might have said that himself. In fact, I think he has. And this is very unusual in the US, especially because we tend to associate protests with democracy and freedom, with genuine grassroots expression. We're genuinely sympathetic of protests. So it really is very unusual that Trump is so isolated from the broader American political discourse. And this interview on, on Tiananmen and Gorbachev was from 1990. After this election, two weeks ago, when protests broke out in a number of cities across the country, including in Seattle, what was Trump's immediate response on Twitter? To claim that the, the media was stirring people up and the protesters were professional, meaning that it wasn't legitimate, right? And that it, it was profession. And this is a very Putin-esque view of the world. That is, you need a strong hand, or the people will run amok and anarchy will follow. As, Putin, as Trump said in his um, convention speech, he is the law and order candidate. Again, this is something that Putin might say. So if you look at, at the rhetoric of these two politicians, um, 
Their idea of power means having no internal rivals uh, and governing without, without real opposition. Rather than uh, a democratic understanding of where power comes from, which is institutional, and it means having support, building legitimacy through coalitions and persuasion, and thereby having the people behind you, which gives you more power. That's how democracies tend to function. And then another way I think that uh, where Trump might see a little bit of Putin in himself is as deal makers. They're both big, powerful men who like making deals. Now, Putin wants Russia to be a major player on the global stage. Make deals with great powers on the future of Ukraine, on NATO, on Syria. Big men representing big countries sitting at the table and deciding the fate of the world. Also an extension of the politician as CEO, boss, who single-handedly embodies the company, embodies strength. And again, this Trump slash Putin model of, of power is at odds with conventional norms today of diplomacy and navigating through a messy democracy. It's very old fashioned. So Trump is this interesting dual figure who, who uses social media to his advantage and tweets all the time and yet embodies this kind of 19th century old fashioned um, great power model of politics. So does this mean Putin and Trump will get along? Not necessarily. Because when you go back from personality to real politics, you can see a lot of complications. So Trump may imagine that personal affinity alone is sufficient to drive foreign relations, but it's actually more complicated than just tweeting a policy. Even assuming that Trump's campaign rhetoric was sincere, that is a big if, may be difficult for Trump to follow through on some of his campaign rhetoric, as David mentions regarding China. Trump wants to make a drastic move. He's sitting across the table from Putin and playing risk. <laughs> and they make a deal, and Trump decides to recognize Russia's annexation of Crimea or to drop sanctions. I'm not sure what he would get in return, maybe just a lot of flattery. But could Putin get away with doing this, even if he really wanted to? And I think the answer is depends on how much he really cares. So when he becomes president, some of his priorities will involve reaching out to the base that elected him, which means acting on the things he talked about the most, like immigration and trade and infrastructure. But as I mentioned before, his supporters are not clamoring for a better deal with Russia. And if Trump tries to act on this, he'll have to spend a lot of political capital. Major change like that in Russia's favor would provoke major pushback from American allies across the world, including in Europe. He would receive criticism from longtime foreign policy hands in DC and face resistance in the bureaucracy, right? From people in the State Department, Defense, National Security, um, who spent their whole careers thinking of Russia as an adversary and would not want to go along with a 180 policy shift. Uh, Trump doesn't like being criticized. He doesn't like it when people say mean things about him. And this would inevitably happen if he tried such a major policy shift. So would it be worth him, would it be worth it for him to bother with it? Possibly not. But one alternative is that Trump himself is not ideological, but his advisors might be. Uh, Michael Flynn, the new national security advisor, is seen to be 
very Russophile. Um, there's a picture of him himself at a, um, at a Russian unclear who will pick a secretary of state. If it's Romney, obviously this is a non-starter. If it's somebody who ends up, again, being revisionist in policy toward Russia, if these advisors have strong opinions about it and push Trump, maybe Trump would be forced to act or would go along with it regardless of the cost in terms of political capital and that he may not, um, he may not calculate the cost and benefits of such a policy move. So, so cut to the chase. Uh, what are we likely to see? What are some of the alternatives? There are, as there often are, three main alternatives, right? The good, bad, and the ugly. So, but there really is no good scenario because there's at least some very important players who lose out in each scenario. So from one perspective, from a realist perspective, um, and this would only be good if you, if you think that, that Russia doesn't pose a threat to the world or to Europe, would be a, a new reset and a kind of grand bargain between the great powers. Congratulatory uh, phone call to Trump. He mentioned his hopes for a collaborative dialogue between the two countries. So this would mean the kind of scenario I talked about where they, they make a deal over the risk board and uh, Trump makes, makes a major concession over Ukraine, which ratchet down hostility between the two countries. So on one hand, it's good because the two countries are less likely to have a nuclear war. But it ends up being very bad for Ukraine and the Baltic states and other countries who rely on American defense against a potentially hostile or aggressive Russia. But as I mentioned before, it would be hard for Trump to advance this kind of policy. He would be hamstrung at every step. And in the past, presidents have started promising a reset with Russia, ultimately to be foiled because national interests are partly structural and having to do with countries and, and their national interest ultimately prevails. A more likely scenario, this is the middle scenario, is more is business as usual, which would mean low levering, low low level simmering tensions between the two countries, kind of like we have now. Putin is rational. He does not want to fight a war against the US, but he also likes to have the US as an enemy. Trump can easily play the part of a villain and he kind of enjoys that. But the result would be more threats and bluster and occasional brinksmanship, like where Russia moves um, anti-missile defense systems into Europe and moves troops up to the border with NATO. Uh, things that threaten war, keep the tensions going, um, but ultimately sides would be hope hopefully calm enough to prevent the two sides from actually coming to blows. And of course, there's a a big assumption here, which is that Trump has experienced foreign policy hands working for him who will be able to implement a policy of keeping tensions at a low level and preventing them from escalating. Which brings to the worst case scenario. Depending on your imagination, you could come up with a variety of worst case scenarios. I, I, I've come up with one or maybe one and a half. Uh, it doesn't take much to start the ball rolling Right, in a very bad way. It might start with uh, a Russian plane flying over the Baltic Sea and buzzing an American destroyer and accidentally crashing into it, creating a big international incident. International incidents can usually be resolved peacefully by experienced level-headed diplomats. Again, in this case, all bets are off. Or Putin might get desperate because of things happening domestically, his approval rating, uh, protests at home, and then he needs an enemy. 
This provokes, he purposely provokes Trump, results in some saber rattling. Trump has thin skin. He feels like his manhood is challenged, demands an apology, and then makes some macho move like moving troops into NATO, the NATO uh, front lines, or into Ukraine, or something that Putin really doesn't like. And because Trump doesn't understand the conventions of signaling that is making gestures without really threatening a country's um, interests or security, Russia might get the wrong message. And that can lead to escalation and a whole variety of bad things that I don't need to get to. But we know that a war between America and Russia would be bad. So this is the worst case scenario. Again, there's a lot of different ways this could, this could unfold. And it's hard to say now how likely it is, but most likely I would say the middle scenario, more of the same after maybe some attempts to move the relationship in a different direction is the most likely. Probably close to my 15. I was gonna say one more thing about the similarity between, I'll say very quickly. Uh, I study Central Asian politics. I look at how regimes operate. And one thing that Central Asian leaders do is they rely on immediate family members and put them in positions of power and consult with them closely when they make decisions. And another thing they do is use their public position to advance their own financial interests. I don't need to say anything further, but it's been very instructive to watch what's been going on the last two weeks and knowledge of how other systems work, systems very much unlike our own, is now becoming very relevant and useful in trying to understand what's happening here. So while social scientists study these countries for analytical reasons, perhaps Trump was also studying places like Russia for more personal reasons, watching and learning. I'll stop there. On this optimistic note, um, can you hear me in the back? Is that okay? So raise hands if you cannot. So louder, this better? Okay, all right. Yes? So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Europe. And I want to caution you, uh, many of you sitting here with experiences traveling in Europe, being quite informed about Europe, I would assume that whenever I talk about Europe, I have a distinct feeling um, of unease to some degree, because Europe is 50 states. It is, even if we discount Russia, a panoply of different historical legacies, different cultures, different political systems. So please keep that in mind when uh, I'm going to try and present now a few snapshots about European reactions to these elections and what we can expect from the uh, Trump presidency for Europe. Let me start by just citing a few um, headlines that I've captured in the past three weeks. Um, a German tabloid titled, This is the End of the West. The German defense minister talked about the heavy shock she felt the night of the election. While the German ultra-right-wing party, the Alternative for Germany, uh, tweeted, we are president on the night of the election. In Hungary, Prime Minister Orban called Trump to congratulate them, and both of them agreed that it would be really nice to get together because both were treated as black sheep by the establishment. 
EU Council President Donald Tusk warned that Brexit and Trump's election combined should be a wake-up call for all liberal democracies. And finally, French Prime Minister Jean-Marc Arion asked, what will become of the Paris Agreement on the climate or the nuclear deal with Iran if Donald Trump really wants to consider all this? So, in short, emotions run very high across Europe. And like many here in the room, I and I think many of my colleagues, we struggle not just with understanding what happened in the elections, but we struggle with understanding what exactly Donald Trump's politics will be. So much, I think it is clear, um, this election will not just impact the globe as such, it will impact particularly for Europeans their nation states, domestic politics in nation states. The election will impact the European Union and it will impact transatlantic relations. And those are really the three remarks I'd like to um, dig a little bit deeper in. Domestically, and that's maybe what you've read, heard most about in recent weeks, um, many Europeans are quite worried that the Trump election emboldens and empowers already existing strong right-wing anti-immigration uh, populist rhetoric and action across Europe. That it will fuel important referenda and elections coming up. We have in a couple of weeks a very important referendum in Italy coming up that could really topple or um, 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 make um, Matteo Renzi to resign. We have elections next year in France, in Germany, in the Netherlands. So we know that Trump has been very vocal in his anti-immigration stand and in the process about re not really being very worried about offending European leaders. In March, seven, in March 16, he said, referring to Angela Merkel's immigration policy, I quote, what Merkel did to Germany is a shame, it's sad, adding that he was very disappointed in the move with the whole immigration thing, it's a total disaster. Um, many Europeans are keenly aware that we are not done with this immigration thing, quite the contrary. It is not far-fetched to predict that the global migration crisis and global migration as such will be one of the defining arenas of the 21st century. Cathy will talk more about that in a minute. But in this area where I tend to argue that Europeans actually could learn a few things from historical practices in the US, such as establishing a pretty comprehensive resettlement regime. The overwhelming sentiment right now is that under Trump, only those who advocate for closing borders and for building fences will be emboldened. This is of course compounded by the current situation in Turkey where President Erdogan uses the refugee crisis across Europe to silence his European critics uh, who could potentially address human rights violations and the turn towards authoritarian rule in Turkey. So related uh, domestically to the refugee and migration, migration crisis, but actually casting a little bit of a wider net uh, is that the election of Trump feeds very broadly into a European right-wing populist agenda that is older than Trump. Um, and that will certainly get a boost in the next few months and years to come. If you would 
bear with me for a couple of minutes because I really would like to make a little academic de detour now and just define what I mean by populism. Because I, I want to do this because be in, in, in the media accounts of populism, what we hear a lot right now has to do with a particular communication style. It has to do with inciting fear and anxiety and a demagoguery. But I think in the European context, the way I interpret populism and what I see happening in the US is a little bit more nuanced and it is deeper. For me, populism has three components. One is that it constructs a general will of the people against those in government or the elite. The second one is that Populism is the only force that can articulate this people's voice and people's grievances against others. So there is othering going on. The others can be immigrants, they can be LGBT people, they can be Muslims. Um, we've seen many forms of othering across Europe. But this is an important uh, uh, um, part of what I consider populism. And the third one is that populism always hijacks and hollows out existing democratic political institutions and representative bodies of the people. And I'm, I'm saying this and I want to caution here because what we're also seeing is a lot of people who will say, oh, we need more left-wing populism to counter right-wing populist ideas. And I have, we can talk about that in the discussion, I have uh, some, re some real issues with this, this argument. So I want to make it clear not only because Trump is saying, I'm your voice, I am standing for you and I can fix it. I also want to make this clear because what he says here fuels the Front National in France, um, campaign managers of the Front National have just announced that they're going to travel to DC and New York and learn from Trump's campaign. It fuels Gerd Wilders, the Dutch Freedom Party leader who said politics will never be the same again. What happened in America can happen in Europe and the Netherlands as well this coming year. And let's just for a moment assume that we're here at a tipping point. Let's say Austria will in a few weeks elect a ultra right-wing president. Let's say Marie Le Pen will win in France next year. Let's say Renzi, Matteo Renzi in Italy will be stepping down and the five-star movement of Beppe Grillo will be uh, in a government situation. What that will mean besides a lot of domestic implications towards more illiberal democracies, what that will mean, and this is my second point, that the EU is heavily impacted by that. For the European Union, um, such an outcome, Le Pen winning, for example, would be far, far worse than Brexit. Brexit, we think, is containable somehow. France and Netherlands being led by anti-EU governments is not containable anymore. We do know that President Obama was an ally of Europe. He wanted Europe. What we know about Trump is that he said Europe is very, the EU is very difficult and very bureaucratic. 
students in my classes know that the EU is very difficult and very bureaucratic, but nevertheless, it has a purpose. And Trump also said that he would think about the EU as a kind of as a, as a, as a, as a, as a uh, territory of disaster. Extrapolating from his principle in The Apprentice, we are all obviously going back to that because we don't have that much else to go on, um, he does divide and govern. Dividing and govern is exactly what the EU does not very well. The EU works on compromise, it works on long periods of negotiation. So would he be concerned if the EU would be falling apart? We simply do not know, but um, I'm doubtful. And this brings me quickly to my third point, which is talking about um, transatlantic relations. Um, transatlantic relations are going to be impacted on several levels. Um, I quickly want to address two of them that are at the forefront of many Europeans' thinking. One is that um, Europe and the European Union in particular was very central to negotiating the recent Paris climate deal. Um, Trump promises to rekindle coal, gas, and fracking industry, to recheck the treaty, and to dismantle the Environmental Protection Agency. The only one who I can think of personally who would be happy about EPA being dismantled would be German automaker Volkswagen right now, who just has fined uh, 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 EPA has just fined Volkswagen with a 14.7 billion fine uh, for its manipulation of its diesel cars. But overall, there is huge worry that climate change won't get the attention it deserves. The second thing I'd like to talk about is NATO. Um, that's one area where Trump really has made politics with Europeans during his campaign, his idea that NATO is obsolete, um, that Europeans are not paying a fair share for American protection, and that he said that explicitly Europeans would uh, receive a rather stark message from him, which is, congratulations, you're now defending yourself. Um, the Brussels NATO headquarters, I believe, is in silent panic right now. Um, in terms of finances, if we try and go to the bottom of this, in terms of finances, it's pretty unclear whether Trump believes that other NATO countries owe more money directly to the US for military reassurance or what he really is after. Direct payment in NATO is evenly distributed. Everybody pays according to GDP, so the US pays 50, about 50%, Germany pays about 10%, etc. So we might not really mean this. What he might mean is indirect spending. And yes, here currently the NATO goal that every member of NATO spend 2% of their GDP on military um, items is not being met by most European countries. Only four members of NATO meet that goal besides the US. Um, however, most European members of NATO are almost there. And then I think there is a argument here that would appeal to fairness and say the US <laughs> projects itself and has projected itself as a global military power and Europe has not done that since 1945. 
The U.S. spent roughly $600 billion last year for military expenses. That's more than twice as much as China and almost nine times as much as Russia. And the U.S. gets something in return. The six largest military companies are worldwide are American. And so they have a revenue that generates jobs and generates wealth. So if this is about finances, most European countries by now have articulated that they're going to step up their financial commitments to NATO. But as my colleague Scott has just pointed out, I think there is more of an undercurrent of repositioning US-American foreign policy that goes beyond the finances and that we just can't be sure about. To sum up, um, in my classes on Europe, I always start out with a quote by Jacques Delors, a former French commission president of the EU, who says or said the EU is a UPO, an unknown political object. Now I think we can say that Trump is a UPS. He is an unknown political subject in Europe. And we have certain indicators that the post-war era of the US engagement with an umbrella over Europe is over. But how it will play out, what it will be replaced by, is reading tea leaves right now. And so we have to wait. Thank you so much. When it comes to the protection of human rights, particularly the human rights of some of the most vulnerable among us, refugees and undocumented immigrants and their families, I am not approaching the presidency of Donald Trump with an open mind. I've seen no evidence that he has significantly changed his views. Instead, I believe that he means what he says and that if he's able to, he will implement what he promises. In what follows, I will first highlight and adjust or correct some of Trump's most inflammatory and damaging claims about refugees and then about undocumented immigrants and their families. Trump has been effectively banking on the sad historical fact that immigration policies are frequently shaped more by fear and stereotype than by empirical evidence. Next, I'll discuss what is at stake in his claims, what the potential future impact of his comments may be on those he has targeted in our communities. I'll end by mentioning a few things we can think about doing to protect our families, friends, and community. First, despite the election results, it's important to state outright that Trump is demonstrably an outlier among Americans in his views on Muslim refugees and immigration. In the United States, we no longer treat religious affiliation as a genetic or inherited trait that determines the character or democratic affinities of individuals. Our nation is defined as a political community based on a constitution, laws, and a model of citizenship that admits newcomers from a plurality of, of countries and cultures. Unlike some other countries, with a state-sponsored multiculturalism, like Canada, for example, the United States has had a more laissez-faire multiculturalism since the end of natural or national origins quotas in 1965. We admit newcomers who want to join family members, 
the labor force, or find freedom from persecution. We allow them to maintain their distinctive cultures and to form ethnic communities, providing they conform to our national laws. We do not insist that they adopt and conform to a single national culture, which is more similar to France. We do not limit citizenship to only the biological descendants of our founders. Common language and share a common culture and faith, which was more similar to Germany before the introduction of new citizenship rules in 2000. In fact, with ever-widening globalization, dual or multiple citizenship is becoming increasingly common as nation states attempt to maintain political and economic links with their nationals abroad. That is who we are. Who we shall become in the coming years with a Trump presidency is not clear. First of all, Americans do support taking refugees from the Middle East after security screening. The majority of Americans do support taking in Muslim refugees from Middle East conflicts if they are screened for security risks. In a national sample of nearly 900 adults conducted by the Brookings Institution and the University of Maryland in 2016, May 2016, 59% of Americans say they were ready to accept Middle Eastern Muslim refugees. 56% expressed openness to Syrian refugees in particular. Among millennials, the numbers increased dramatically with 68% saying they support taking in refugees from Syria and other Middle Eastern countries. The majority could be larger if it weren't for exaggerated fears. A plurality of those who oppose Middle Eastern refugees that is, 46% of them name concern about terrorism, not religion, as the principal reason. Yet, Americans overestimate the terrorist threat of refugees. When asked to estimate the number of refugees charged with terrorism since 9-11, only 14% say it's fewer than five, while 28% estimate it to be 100 or more. The actual number is three. The survey question was crossed with the question, in your life, how familiar are you with people who are Muslim? Support for taking in refugees after security screening rises to 62% of those who know some Muslims. Trump's position on exactly which potential immigrants to keep out of the country because of fears of terrorism has shifted multiple times throughout his campaign. Late last year, Following a mass shooting in San Bernardino, California, Trump began with a call to ban all Muslims from entering the United States. In June, after a gunman who had pledged loyalty to ISIS shot and killed 50 people, including himself, at an Orlando, Florida nightclub, Trump called for banning refugees from countries with a, quote, terrorist presence, even though the shooter was born in the United States. In his acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention, Trump repeated a similar position and also talked about countries where thorough vetting is difficult. He's also recently called for what he describes as extreme vetting based on ideology. Though Trump has claimed that there's no paperwork or documentation on refugees from Syria, that's not true. Much is known about them 
and they already undergo rigorous screening that takes anywhere from 18 to 24 months, and sometimes is as long as three years. All refugees are currently screened, screened by several different agencies, and fingerprints are taken. Biometric data is taken. Biographical information is collected. They are then each individually interviewed by U.S. officials trained to verify that they are bona fide refugees. Refugees from Syria are then subject to additional screening that looks at where they came from and what caused them to flee their home. And all this takes place before they even enter the United States. Though there are more than 5 million Syrian refugees, the U.S. has accepted 12,391 to date. One of Trump's advisors, Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, has suggested that the Trump administration could reinstate the Bush and the early Obama era NSEERS program. NSEERS stands for National Security Entry Exit Registration System. And that this is what registered Muslim visitors from, quote, high-risk countries after 9-11 through 2011. Um, of course, Saudi Arabia was not on the list of high-risk countries, as we know. Kobach was the architect of NSEERS and the architect of anti-immigration laws around the country. Another Trump supporter and proponent of a Muslim registry, former Navy SEAL Carl Higby, cited the internment of Japanese Americans as legal precedent for such an action, stating, we've done it based on race, we've done it based on religion, we've done it based on region. Immigrant registrations have historically been a prelude to extreme actions and have been used in some of the darkest errors, eras of the U.S. and world history. Robert McCaw, a spokesman for the Council on Arab-Islamic Relations, the nation's largest Muslim civil rights group, called the reference to internment camps as a precedent absolutely deplorable. The official Twitter account of the Anti-Defamation League posted a statement from its chief executive, Jonathan Greenblatt, saying, if one day, and I'm quoting, if one day Muslims will be forced to register, that is the day that this proud Jew will register as a Muslim. And to um, undocumented immigrants and their families. Americans do support legalization for undocumented immigrants. Gallup, which has tracked public opinion on this issue, found that 65% of Americans favor a path for immigrants who are living illegally in the United States in the country and become citizens if they meet certain requirements over time. That's essentially reflected in the vote margin of the 2013 Senate bill where 68 senators voted in favor of comprehensive immigration reform that included only a path to citizenship after immigrants pay fines and wait more than a decade without committing a crime. An even higher percentage of Americans, 72 percent, favor some path to legal status after a period of time, according to the Pew Research Center. And that includes 56% of Republicans. Only 17% of all Americans favor deporting undocumented immigrants. Again, Trump is an outlier. A 
Among the most persistent claims that President-elect Trump has made regarding undocumented immigrants and their families concern their al alleged record pace of migration into the U.S., their huge numbers, and their criminality. In point of fact, between 2009 and 2014, the U.S. has actually seen a decline in the number of Mexicans attempting to cross the southern border and has seen more Mexican immigrants leaving the United States than coming in, a net loss of 140,000 immigrants. Trump has claimed that our government doesn't really know how many undocumented immigrants there are in the United States. He says there could be 3 million or 30 million, but he argues that the government has no idea. In fact, multiple reliable sources from the Department of Homeland Security to the Pew Research Center have stated that the number of undocumented immigrants has remained pretty stable at somewhere between 11.3 and 11.4 million individuals. It is nowhere near 30 million individuals. The announcement that he was running for the presidency, Trump made crime a major theme of his campaign. Though he has mentioned several real cases of murders committed by individuals in the country without documents, multiple analyses have demonstrated that immigrants commit violent crime at a much lower rate than those born in the United States. The percentage of young native-born men without a college education behind bars is three to five times greater than the percentage of Mexican or Central American undocumented immigrant men. In other words, the overwhelming majority of immigrants are not criminals by any commonly accepted definition of the term. Trump has been relying on the conflation between the term and criminal, turning them all into one big racialized, criminalized, and threatening category of people whom he characterizes as inherently, innately deportable. What are some of his recommendations based on these gross inaccuracies and outlandish exaggerations. First, as we all know, building an impermeable wall or barrier, some fences now, between Mexico and the United States. Whoever pays for it, it is now estimated to cost $25 billion. He has also promised to deport all undocumented immigrants and has, re and has referenced President Eisenhower's deportation program of approximately 2.1 million. But no one has deported as many as 11 million, let alone the 30 million that Trump mistakenly believes live in the US. He's promised to increase security by increasing the number of Border Patrol agents by 25%, based on the unsupported belief that record numbers of undocumented immigrants are sneaking across an already militarized border at a record pace. I don't believe that Trump can accomplish these plans anytime soon because they're very expensive and they'll take a very long time to achieve. But the Mexican Council in Seattle has already cautioned Mexi Mexican nationals in the state, and 12% of Washington state's population is Latino. He's cautioned them to get prepared. Be calm, he says, but start to get your documents together if your immigration status is questioned. Get American documents together, like school and tax records, and get Mexican passports for children, even if they were born in the United States, 
so that they can travel with their parents if their parents are deported. Brings me to the most sinister, the most disturbing, and sadly, I think the most achievable of Trump's promises, that he will end the DACA program and deport undocumented American youth and young adults. What is DACA? <laughs> DACA stands for Consideration of Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. When comprehensive immigration reform and the Federal DREAM Act failed to pass both houses of Congress on numerous occasions, and there seemed no path to legality for the children of most undocumented immigrants, for the children of undocumented immigrants who had grown up American, President Obama instructed the Department of Homeland Security in June 2012 to exercise its prosecutorial discretion and consider the requests to temporarily defer the deportation of certain people who came to the United States as children and to grant them temporary work permits if they met specific guidelines. DACA is not a path to legalization. It is not amnesty and it does not lead to citizenship. It is renewable after two years and any president can just end it, just like that. More than 740,000 Undocumented American young people have, DACA, have DACA now, and anywhere from one to three hundred to three hundred UW students have DACA, which has allowed them to go to college and to work without fear of immediate deportation. Right now, all their personal information and their undocumented parents' and siblings' information is in the hands of Homeland Security. Immigration attorneys are cautioning young undocumented Americans who don't have DACA now, not to apply for it now, not to hand over their personal information just yet, rather to wait and see what happens. As one of my students said to me after the election, and I'm paraphrasing, I am a patriotic American. It's hard for me to criticize the government, but the hardest thing will be if I have to go live in the shadows again after having had DACA. Seattle Mayor Murray has declared Seattle a sanctuary city, as have mayors and governors in a number of places, New York City, New York State, Washington State, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Oakland, Boston, Philadelphia, Providence, Rhode Island, and others. But will this really protect young undocumented Americans from deportation? What does sanctuary city or sanctuary state means that local law enforcement from these regions will be instructed to not cooperate with ICE, that is, with not cooperate with Immigration and Customs, customs Enforcement in deportations, and to not share information about immigrant status with ICE unless an immigrant has committed a serious crime. As one Oakland, California resident put it when she considered the impact of the election on her community, we do have many undocumented immigrants, but often these are residents who came to our city as toddlers. They have grown up here and gone to our public schools. These are not illegal aliens, they are friends' children, people sitting next to us in our church pews and on the bus. Here it feels more personal. President-elect Trump has vowed that he will block all federal funding to cities that do not cooperate with ICE. That could 
via a loss of a lot of money for localities with serious homelessness concerns and low-income family needs. This is where the support of local communities, philanthropists, and private corporations can play a big role in replacing federal funding in places that are sanctuary cities. But perhaps Trump will even go further and fight sanctuary policies in court and prosecute city leaders, as his advisors have promised. We don't know yet. The future is unclear, but I'm taking President-elect Trump as his word now. So we are uh, connected to uh, Tel Aviv now, Professor Migdal, uh, Joel. Good morning. Good morning. You are, <laughs> your voice comes the clearest of all my colleagues. <laughs> so uh, as I mentioned, we have a room full of your students, uh, friends, people you know, and a lot of people I don't know. So, uh, but a lot of interest in what you have to say. Uh, so please go ahead. Well, thank you, Rashad. It's really good to be part of this, although the more I thought about it, the more I thought maybe it's not so good. Um, the Middle East has been abs absolutely uh, befuddled, like everyone else, by the election of Trump. Uh, no one here expected it, uh, not in Egypt, not in Saudi Arabia, not in Jordan not in Israel, where I'm sitting right now. And um, it just added for them another element in an extremely uncertain situation here. The Middle East is in extraordinary turmoil. I don't have to tell anybody sitting in the audience that they know that. Um, but I just thought I might go over some of the shocks that uh, the Middle East has experienced in the last uh, de uh, two decades, since the beginning of the 2000s, which have really rocked basic relations between countries in the region and also between governments and the population they govern. And the Trump presidency won't be able to escape the turmoil that these shocks produced and will have to deal probably with many of them directly. I'm going to just list six of these shocks. First is and the U.S. invasion of Iraq and the U.S. war on terror, which were extraordinarily unsettling. Um, the second is the Arab Spring. The third was the U.S. withdrawal from Iraq in 2011, which Trump made uh, a central issue in his candidacy. The fourth, and perhaps the most unnerving right now, is the unraveling of established Middle East states uh, through civil war. Syria, Yemen, Libya, Iraq, um, all basically have disintegrated as states as we know them. And these disintegrative forces are working in other countries like Jordan, which so far have managed to avoid falling apart, but face some of the same pressures. The fifth and one I'll come back to, which everybody is reading about daily, is the 
Syrian civil war and particularly the internationalization of the Syrian civil war. And finally, the emergence of ISIS, which took over large swaths of Iraq and Syria, established a presence in Libya, Yemen, and in other parts of the, of the Middle East. Now, what you have basically is the Arab core of the Middle East from Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf all the way through Egypt and North Africa and into uh, the, the northern Arab uh, regions in Syria, where the, the basic core has disintegrated. And those countries are no longer basically able to call the shots either in their own territories or in the, in the region. Um, the, I'm going to come back to the United States' role in a few minutes to this, but it's, it's also very worrisome to these countries that as they have weakened, so too in their perception has the United States' commitment to the region weakened. So we'll come back to that. Um, the strong states of the region are the non-Arab states, Turkey, uh, Iran, and Israel. And they have reacted with alarm as the region around them has undergone these shocks. Um, Iran in particular has undergone tremendous change and has really been very fearful of what's been happening in the Middle East and the disintegration of the system. First of all, it found the Arab Spring extremely alarming, uh, especially after its own uprising in 2009, the Green Revolution. But the key here for Iran was that it had been basically the dominant country in the region, and it had enhanced its regional power through an alliance that, in, that ran from the Persian Gulf through all the way through to the Mediterranean. It included um, uh, uh, the parts of Iraq. Iraq was a sort of uh, in-and-out member of this bloc, but the main members were Syria and Hezbollah and Hamas. The Arab Spring and the uprising in Syria basically disrupted that block that went, as I said, from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean. And Syria, the key link between the eastern Middle East and the western Middle East, fell into disarray. Now, this was a blow, a tremendous blow to Iran and to Iran's power. Hamas also, which had been uh, a part of this um, uh, block, fell out of the block. We could talk about that in the question period if people like. And all of a sudden, Iran fell, found, found itself as a kind of victim of the Arab Spring and a victim of the Syrian disintegration. Its response was uh, twofold. On the one hand, its new weakness, I think, led it to 
opened the door again to engagement with the United States and ultimately what became the, the nuclear deal that it signed with the, with the United States. And the second thing it did was to become deeply involved in Syria in trying to salvage what looked like a doomed regime back in 2011, 2012, 2013. And it became, and this involvement opened the door to a new Middle East. The countries that had already been fearing Iran and feeling that Iran was threatening their position, particularly the Persian Gulf states, Saudi Arabia and Jordan, reacted with tremendous fear about the extension of Iranian power into Syria, and they began to counter that power. And two things came out of this. One was the regionalization of Syrian, um, the Syrian crisis. Um, and this regionalization took place as the Persian Gulf states in particular, but also Jordan and Egypt, sided with the rebels in Syria and Iran sided with the, the government. It also had a second effect, which was to exacerbate the Shiite-Sunni split. These are the two sects that everyone knows of Islam. About 90% of all Muslims are Sunnis, about 10% are Shiites. But Iran is a Shiite country. Hezbollah, the other key member fighting in Syria on Iran's behalf, is Shiite. And the countries that came in opposing the regime and opposing what Iran was trying to do in salvaging the Syrian regime were Sunni. And this exacerbated an, uh, the, the split between these two sects in ways that we had not seen uh, in our lifetimes or even um, for hundreds of years prior to this. So this really sent the Middle East into uh, turmoil. Um, Turkey also um, found itself badly um, displaced and disrupted by what happened in the, in the um, Arab world, particularly in Syria. It had developed a policy of zero problems with its neighbors. It had supported the Arab Spring initially, particularly when the Muslim Brotherhood had taken over in Egypt. But once the Syrian civil war began, Turkey became intensely um, opposed to the regime and supportive of the um, supportive of the the rebels. Um, and once the Muslim Brotherhood was ousted in Egypt, relations between Egypt and Turkey fell apart. The emergence of autonomous Kurdish zones in Iraq and then during the Syri Syrian civil war deeply disturbed the, the Turks and their relations with Israel disintegrated. So what turned out, what started as zero problems with neighbors left Turkey highly isolated with no good relations with almost any of its neighbors. And Israel probably has had the most measured response to all the changes in uh, what's going on in the Middle, Middle East, probably because it doesn't know what to make of 
anything that's going on and who to side with. Um, but there have been several key reactions. First, the withdrawal of the United States from Iraq in 2011 was deeply disturbing to Israelis. And I'm talking now of Israelis both on the left and on the right. It was, it's very hard to find anybody in Israel, Palestinian, Jewish, uh, uh, religious, secular, who support, who found the United States policy under the Obama regime acceptable. They found basically that they perceived that the United States, especially with the tilt towards uh, Asia, found the United States basically not providing the kinds of leadership that it had given earlier. ISIS also has been a deep concern to Israel, as is watched warily. And oh, during this last week, we have the first battles now between Israel, first engagements between Israel and ISIS. In some ways, um, Israel has found that the, the turmoil in the Middle East has worked to its favor. It's been able to um, build quiet alliances with some of the Sunni states. But for the most part, Israel has sort of stepped away from the uh, regional turmoil and tried to isolate itself as much as it uh, could. Now, what's going to be the Trump effect on this region that is full of turmoil, in which the United States has some key allies, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Persian Gulf states, Jordan, Israel, Turkey. These are historic allies of the United States. All of them have reacted the same way, which is I start, as I started to, to say at the beginning, which was they were totally fuddled by the Trump um, election. And they're trying to sort it out and figure it out. And they are as much at uh, uh, kind of asking what's going to happen as we are. But we can see a couple of uh, elements in what Trump said during the election and some of the recent appointments that really have um, uh, given us some indication of the direction he might take. First of all, he has talked about stepping away from the United States' traditional role as the world's policeman. Now, this is a, uh, an important uh, element that I may have been underemphasized during the campaign, but basically the United States pays tremendous costs for keeping the sea lanes open, offering a nuclear, a nuclear umbrella, creating multiple bases abroad. And whether one supports these or is opposed to them, the United States pays a tremendous cost. And it's these costs that Trump focused on in his critique of United States foreign policy. At the same time, being the world's policeman reaps tremendous benefits for the United States. And these are very hard to quantify, but probably the biggest benefit comes from the U.S. dollar being the basic world reserve currency and the denomination of commodities in dollars. And since the U.S. can print dollars, which no other country can, 
um, it gives the United States tremendous strength and tremendous leverage both in the world economy and in world politics. So this element of stepping away from paying those high costs may also mean that the United States will lose some of the benefits that it receives uh, as, as, as the world, uh, world's policeman. What is key here for the Middle East states, though, is the feeling that Trump actually will be a continuation of Obama. And by that I mean... Um, Middle East states, Middle East leaders, and the general public, the, the ones I have spoken with at least, feel, as I said a, a few minutes ago, feel that Obama basically was leaving them hanging in the wind. That he was, that the withdrawal from Iraq was a signal that the traditional umbrella that the United States provided that stabilized the Middle East was being folded up. Now, they see Trump as doing more of the same. That is, there is tremendous worry that his lack of interest in the Middle East, his lack of interest in paying the costs to offer some kind of U.S. hegemonic relationship with the, with the region is going to further destabilize uh, the area. Um, I, let me just say a couple more words and then maybe open it or give it back to you, Rashan, and open it to any questions that people will have. Um, Trump has had two clear lines of um, thought regarding the Middle East, at least kind of policy indications that he may take. One is opposition to the Iranian nuclear deal which he uh, said was one of the worst deals in history, and Obama's attempt to engage the Iranians diplomatically. So we might be seeing a new policy towards Iran. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. The second element in his line of thought has been his talk of an all-out assault on ISIS. Now, um, these two goals, opposing the Iranian nuclear deal and working to wipe out ISIS, may lead to important and distressing internal contradictions for the Trump administration. Wiping out ISIS will mean teaming with Russia. And we've also already begun to see some statements from President-elect Trump indicating a closer relationship with Russia. And of course, his relationship with Putin was a, a big issue in the campaign. What we're going to see then is a kind of sea change. Obama's quiet and restrained, and some people said overly restrained, so, uh, support of the rebels in Syria against the Assad regime may now be turned into teaming up with Russia against ISIS, leading to support of the Assad regime by uh, the United States. In other words, a 180 degree turn um, in the internal politics of Syria. Why? In order, in order to combat ISIS. 
But this necessarily is going to mean closer relationships and coordination with Iran. Iran and Russia have developed an axis now in Syria. Turkey may or may not be uh, at least sympathetic to that access or access and joining that axis, making its own turn, worried about the United States support of Kurdish uh, forces and Kurdish autonomy. And so what you have all of a sudden is the United States teaming up with Russia, with the Assad regime, what's left of it, with possibly Hezbollah, which is fighting ISIS on the ground in Syria, and with Iran. And this is going to lead to a, a whole set of questions. Can you at the same time condemn the nuclear deal and ask for a renegotiation of it? or break ties with it at the same time that you're trying to enlist Iran to, fly, to fight uh, ISIS. So I think we're going to see a, a kind of sorting out in the first 30 to 60 days of the Trump presidency to where he falls on this. And it's not at all obvious how he's going to get out of this tangle. I'll just close by saying a couple of words on Israel so I'm, since I'm sitting here in Tel Aviv, as the sun comes up here, um, the reaction uh, in, among Palestinians here to the Trump election was uh, one of true alarm. They are extremely fearful that what had been uh, a shaky prospect to begin with, which was getting some kind of two-state solution to the Arab uh, or to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, that this possibility is going to disappear altogether under Trump. At the same time, watching Israeli television, I saw leaders of the West Bank settlers actually dancing on television in, as they were being interviewed by newscasters when Trump was elected. Their feeling is that Trump is going to basically open the door for the annexation of, a, if not the entire West Bank, huge parts of the West Bank, and basically let settlers do what they want to do without any international or at least U.S. condemnation. I don't think it's going to be so simple. I think that uh, Trump is going to find, like every other president, that this conflict between Israel and the Palestinians is extremely constraining. I would be very surprised, for example, if Trump follows through with his promise to move the U.S. embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. But um, as in everything else, it's very uncertain of what's going to happen. And in this region, uncertainty only leads to more violence. Thank you very much, Joel. Thanks. So we have a little time for questions. We have two microphones on either side. Please uh, come up to the microphones if you have questions and ask them. I was curious okay. for any of the speakers that may be willing to answer. Is there anything that you can suggest concretely that we as citizens could do to affect the process of um, 
how the president picks his advisors or international policy? So, uh, Joel, for your benefit, the question is, is there anything we can, we, we can do to influence the process through which Trump picks his international advisors? It's, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting, actually, this weekend, uh, uh, Trump's campaign manager uh, had to go on TV to uh, raise objections to the possibility of Mitt Romney's appointment, because apparently the easiest way of getting to Trump is to be on TV, because he watches TV all the time. So maybe we should try and go on TV and talk to did you want to say anything about this, Joe? Well, I, you know, I, I don't think there's much that we can do. I, I, well, I'll, I will say this, that um, the United States traditionally has had um, really good and knowledgeable experts, particularly inside the State Department, but elsewhere on various regions of the world. The Middle East is no exception to that. And... Um, during the Bush presidency, uh, I've written about this in, in, uh, in my book, the, the, the bu during the Bush presidency, basically there was a feeling that you really don't need area experts, that if you kind of have a sense of how the world works, you don't need to know a lot about the particular countries. Runs counter to everything that the Jackson School believes in. And... Um, I think we may see that also in the Trump presidency. I don't really see people with strong, deep backgrounds in the Middle East being vetted for positions right now. And I think there's a feeling that if, that you, if you have generalists who kind of think they know the world, they won't need to know the, the intricacies of policy. And I think this is, in the Middle East, this is just a recipe for disaster. It's got and if I could just add to that, I think uh, so far the, the pattern of appointments we've seen is not generalists as much as loyalists. To so get back to a theme I touched on earlier, which reminds me very much of places in Eurasia, uh, Trump values loyalty extremely highly. And a lot of the people he's picked had, were, not, were not known figures before, were not foreign policy or domestic policy experts before, but they had speaking roles at his convention, which means they supported him even when he was unpopular, and now he's rewarding their loyalty. But that does not necessarily mean they're competent. I have a question for Professor Lang, is it? Um, about uh, comparisons between Trump and fascism, if these kinds of comparisons are accurate or useful, or if they're a little bit hysterical, if you could just comment on that of course a question that's being debated and asked in many European media right now and I think from where we stand um, there is no clear cut answer. What I see is that this, remember this populism definition I gave you, this three part definition, that of course feeds into prototypes of fascist behavior. So some people in Germany will make the analogy that uh, in the 1930s what you saw is a utter 
defamation of the established media, that what you saw is exactly this tone of we against them, um, the mobilization of the emotions of uh, so, f so far marginalized people. Um, you could make, I think, five or six comparisons along those lines that still would not mean that we're heading for fascism here. I think what I hear from European colleagues is a very distinct sense that we have to be very careful with our words here, and a distinct sense that we should be very observant of seeing where this populist sentiment goes from here. So, no, we're not seeing fascism. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about it. So, Joel, uh, this question to uh, all the panelists, including you, uh, basically uh, it's about the possible consequences of U.S. withdrawing from TPP, uh, from NATO, from other international uh, uh, commitments. And what does that mean for uh, U.S. position um, uh, in, the, in, in these various regions and in the world? So maybe, Joel, you're patiently there early in the morning in Israel. Why don't you start with your response? Well, um, first of all, I think it's going to be much harder to withdraw from these uh, agreements than um, one might think. And uh, I, I actually don't think that we're going to see, at least initially, much withdrawal from anything. The TPP might be the, the, the exception to that. But even there, I think what we're going to see is a call for renegotiation of certain parts of it rather than withdrawal. Um, I think that these international organizations and agreements and deals that the United States has been part of have been a marker of the United States presence in the world. And there is going to be a lot of blowback if the United States begins to make sounds about withdrawing from these. How Trump will, re will react to that blowback, I don't know. But I'm cautiously optimistic that the United States will basically uh, continue its, its uh, commitments. All of these things suggest that uh, the so-called benefits are feeling good about being the world's businessman, middleman, policeman, et cetera, were not as widely and deeply shared, and ones where there are constituencies for uh, sort of feet from political globalization, but where the economic and technological aspects of globalization are likely to continue. Out the United States playing at least significant role, if not the leading role, guiding that technological and economic. We're interesting, we're, we're in for quite complex and interesting times. Also worth noting that uh, among Trump's campaign promises for what they're worth, uh, he also proposed spending a lot more money on defense and building, I don't know, hope, uh, some, some number of new sh naval ships. Um, for some reason, they have a fixation on the number of ships. Uh, but this also implies that he sees the US projecting power through the military, probably at the expense of diplomacy. And this would just make, I think, the existing imbalance between the different tools in, in the US foreign policy toolkit uh, even more extreme in favor of, of the military. Um, 
but the military also is kind of a self-sustaining bureaucracy. U.S. will continue policing the, the sea lanes. The U.S. will be in the Middle East. The U.S. has bases all over the world. The U.S. role is not going to disappear. It's just, it, if he follows through on these pledges, it will shift. It will focus less on trade and more on security. And um, this has various implications. I think the bigger threat, though, is something more like World War I, a, a miscalculation a set of misunderstandings that come from the uncertainty of whether the U.S. would actually um, stand as a backstop in, in an alliance, uh, leading states to miscalculate and ending up with a tra an inadvertent tragedy like World War I. And Joel, I want to repeat these uh, two comments because it's a panel discussion. Uh, David uh, made the comment that uh, we realized that a substantial number of the U.S. electorate does not really share this idea that you has a special role to play in the world and they're fine with the U.S. withdrawal. But of course, if Trump follows through, um, he said that other aspects of globalization will continue, uh, but if U.S. is not guiding or playing a significant role in it, uh, U.S. may end up being the, um, the end up suffering from this uh, change. Uh, and Scott made the point that while Trump is arguing that the U.S. will withdraw from uh, some international commitments. It, he is also saying that he will increase spending on military, and he made the uh, a, 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 an observation which is troubling uh, a lot of us: is that uh, the world will uh, be faced with a some form of a militarization and military competition, which will create uncertainties uh, and, and uh, reminding us of the years that led up to World War I that may uh, end up in a, in a big catastrophe without a governing or stabilizing force of other international uh, commitments. So I think we have one more question. This will be the last question, and that's right, 9 o'clock, so. First of all, uh, I'd like to thank everyone, uh, the experts, giving us their uh, credible views. Uh, I learned quite a bit, I'm a professor. Now, uh, my question is, uh, it seems to me that we are actually reacting to uh, uh, a, a, a change, which we think is a significant change, to status quo. Why are we so much worried about it, what is happening right now, as if we know what's going to happen in 30 years. History of the world, uh, United States is going to stay as a leader, or China is going to overtake, but Russia is going to have a special uh, status. Europe is going to be as a specific status. I'm not sure whether uh, it is clear uh, we know what would happen in 30 years time, 20 years time, or 10 years time, if Clinton elected? Would we be gathering here talking about this? I voted for Clinton, by the way. <laughs> so my question to professors, I'm an engineer, and I want to know what the goal is, and know exactly how to reach that goal. We you know, <laughs> set up the experiments, or, or the theory, and we get there. So do, did, we, did we know 
what was going to happen in 2050, for example. Trump came and everything is disrupted. Is that the reaction we are having here? Professors, if you're tired, I am tired also. You don't have to answer so, this question. Right. So I'll, I, I think this is something that we can think about. I'll give them a chance, but I'll also repeat it for Joel. This is an engineer friend of, from an engineer friend of ours, and uh, he wants to know, uh, how do we know what things will be like? Why are we worried about uh, there are so many unknowns? And if Clinton was elected, there will be equal number of unknowns. So what's so special about the situation that we have these panels and workshops and talk about this? I think Scott and Sabine both are willing to take this on. Very, very briefly, I think you're asking a, a meta-historical question about what drives history. Is it structural processes or do individuals actually make a difference? My sense is usually individuals do not make a difference, but occasionally they do. <laughs> and this, we can name a few people in history without whom history would look very different. Among them, Hitler, Stalin, maybe Osama bin Laden. And Trump might be such a figure. And in general, it's probably easier for a single individual to do horrible damage rather than to do great things and push history in that direction. <clears throat> None of us knows what's going to happen, but Trump might be, based on his behavior and how unusual he is, he might be such a figure. I think that justifies speculating about it. Call that a catalyst. <laughs> All right, and just a couple more sentences, then I think we will let you go. Um, I think it is people who make history, yes, in sometimes, but it is generally debates and shifts in the kind of frames that we use in how we understand democracy that make a difference. And this is where my personal um, heart starts to pound a little faster when I think about the way discourse shifted within a year. We're talking now in Europe since about, I would say, five to ten years, but now in the U.S. about populist rhetoric that will enhance what we could call an illiberal democracy outlook that will enhance this idea that minorities have hijacked with their particular elite interests the political process and that we uh, have to get back to the people, whatever the people, the construction of this, of this entity is. So my plea would be to be aware of the debates and the discourses that shape this presidency besides the fact that we look at him and his hairdo and, and understand neither, right? Okay. All right, so uh, David and Kathy, and I will summarize them for Joel and maybe he wants to. When I, when I taught my two classes on immigration on the Thursday following the election, pretty grim room. So I, I reminded my students of what the, uh, the map when it was peopled with the millennial generation looked like. One of my students said, well, slavery lasted for 400 years. I said, I said, you guys have the power, I said, to change, to change what the U.S. like in the next election. And you might have done it this time, but you could do it the next time. 
I think what what I see as as the role or what I have faith in, I think is is the millennial generation. Um, particularly our our role here, you know, in, in terms of wanting wanting to be educated, wanting information, and our. our so, uh, Joel, uh, very briefly, uh, Scott uh, said that generally he doesn't, you know, uh, believe that individuals really uh, make history or change, make a lot of change, but there are some individuals who really make significant changes, and he's concerned that uh, Trump might be one of them. Um, uh, Sabine Lang uh, cautioned us that in Europe the liberal conversation started relatively slowly, and then uh, within five years now, uh, they have become uh, close to main mainstream, if not mainstream. So she uh, is concerned that a similar trend is starting in the US. And if we're not concerned about it, if we don't um, uh, deal with it, it may turn into something uh, a lot uh, larger. Um, uh, David uh, reminded us that Trump, one of the reasons why we're here, uh, is it's obvious that Trump doesn't play by the rules, so that uh, creates all kinds of um, uh, uncertainties, and that's the reason for our concern right now. And uh, and finally, uh, Kathy mentioned that the students uh, who were faced with the results of the election in her class were very worried about their future and that also could serve as a wake-up call for this generation to really become more involved and, and, and try to affect uh, the future uh, uh, political uh, events and, and elections. So those are the responses to why we are concerned. And uh, perhaps you have uh, some things to say before we close this. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for getting me up so early. Um, <laughs> Well, I was going to thank you, but now I won't. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, none of us knows what's going to happen in 30 years, that's for sure. And if the Middle East is any judge, seven years ago, no one could have imagined what the Middle East uh, looks like uh, today. But we can try to unravel uh, what's happening in front of us and put it in some kind of a context. My expectation is that um, what we're going to see over the, this administration, and we'll see if I'm right or not, is that this is going to be a domestically driven uh, administration, that foreign policy is really going to take um, a, a back seat because there are going to be many, many issues like the ones that Sabina raised uh, on the continuation of the rule of law, on the economy, on class uh, warfare, on all sorts of elements of the immigration issue, race issue, and others. And they're going to be constantly bubbling up to the top, which means that on foreign policy, what we're going to see is less a kind of Trump plan or vision or way of dealing with the world than uh, a kind of reactive Trump. The reacting to the fires that uh, that are set in various places and that the United States uh, has some deep interest in and therefore will have to react to those fires. 
That's not a good way to handle foreign policy, and I think it um, is going to weaken the United States and make the world a more unstable place, if that's possible. Um, but uh, I, I think that's what we're going to see over the next uh, four years. Well, uh, with that, Joel, I do want to thank you for, for getting up and being available and being so patient. And thank you all for coming and joining us and thank uh, our panelists and also uh, for uh, the work that Tamara Leonard did, the Center for Global Studies and also Center for West European Studies, who worked very hard uh, to put this event together. So thank you very much for coming and hope to see you in